Aloha, and welcome to another Candid Conversation. Uh, today, we're doing something a little different. We're having a husband and wife team <laughs> joining. And as long as we can keep everything peaceful, we should be able to have a pretty good discussion. Steve Clegg <laughs> and Debbie Frakes are with us from Wimsby and Fintora and a series of other things who have um, had, in my view, they provide some of the most meaningful tools for dealers that's ever been out there. And I'd like to just talk about that for the next period of time and, and introduce it to you. And I hope that this is going to be the first of several discussions that we can have uh, to expand on data analytics and telematics and all of the technology issues that are in front of us. So Debbie, who Debbie and Steve right now are in Mexico. I'm in Hawaii, and the rest of North America is freezing up north, so I feel sorry for you, but welcome, <laughs> Debbie. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Um, I don't know quite where to start this. Um, last night, we put up a blog about your forecasting model that protects us whether or not it's a boom or a bust. Um, which is quite different than most people. Everybody's reactionary to it. Steve, maybe you can kick this off and 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 address that issue. Why is forecasting? Why can forecasting prepare us for either a boom or a bust? I think what you really can't plan unless you have a forecast. And unfortunately, most forecasts are revenue driven. Not they don't have a foundation. Uh, your financial guy says, well, I want to grow 20%. Great. Put the numbers in and then the sales team is tasked with finding the revenue to, to fill that void. And then everyone tries to play catch up to see if they can actually handle it. And either they overspend in anticipation of a sales that never come or they underspend and can't actually handle the work that comes in. So they're reacting to the opportunity. So what we did is we, we built a, an AI model that for the last several years has been able to forecast it a, with an accuracy above 95% for customers' transactions and ultimately revenue. Revenue tends to vary depending on the mix of equipment sales, but equipment sales only represent one to 2% of all transactions. So while it's important from a revenue standpoint, it's not really relevant for engaging a customer and retaining them. The customer only knows you from the, the transactions and the experiences of each of those purchases. Um, and the equipment, while it's important from a, a revenue standpoint, it doesn't determine whether you're going to retain that customer and engage them. It's so... It's it's in, it's interesting the and let me just using jargon AI is artificial intelligence right yes yes I wonder how many people actually realize that one to two percent of the transactions in their business are around equipment I think there's a lot of folks that would be very surprised at that because they tend not to think of it that way do they no they think of it in terms of dollars. And dollars um, are, you can't forecast, you can't forecast using revenue. That's an after the fact event. So that's unfortunately for most people, they take the county data, which is always looking backwards and they forecast from revenue. And then they spend their time explaining why their forecasts um, didn't materialize and making excuses, uh, the weather or some other nonsense where um, if you turn that around and look at, am I retaining the customers? Am I engaging them? And what's the pattern of purchase going forward? Um, for the equipment industry, it's a one, two, four. If you can retain the customer and they buy one time the first year, they'll buy twice the second year, they'll buy four times the third year. If you engage them, it'll go two, four, eight. So really all your growth is already you already have all the customers that are actually going to provide the growth going forward. And you'll get revenue pops from selling off used equipment or someone comes in, wants to buy a big piece of equipment. So you'll get a, a revenue surge from that, but it's not the real business. The core of the business 
is transactions and retention. That's what drives the business. And then what factors, and this is where the artificial intelligence comes in. What factors you know, impact that? Distance from your branch, your competition. Um, what's your customer satisfaction score? You know, are you proactive with your customers or reactive? All these things are easily monitored. And most people don't, but it, it causes um, people to, it, it allows people to actually understand what's going to happen and then plan for that versus being a victim and reacting and always feeling like I can never get my arms around this. I suspect that you're confronted with a lot of resistance because that is a real serious change in view. Am I overstating it? No, it's a it, it's it's a, a, a battle to get people to understand how business works because they're they're tasked with every day, and they and they're hearing opinions and personalities and you know all this noise and especially the industry where you've got seasonality pretty severe in lots of markets and cyclicality, it causes people to become reactionary. And once they become reactionary, they start, they stop thinking. So if you, if you're going to look, you have to look forward. And if you look forward, then you can plan. But if you can't look forward with a realistic um, picture of the future, um, you're just, you know, wasting your time. Yeah. And a lot of people waste a lot of time. Yeah, they get lost out there, don't they? And Debbie, you do this actually in, in person to person surveys too, don't you? Yeah, we do. We do uh, customer satisfaction surveys and we point out any problems that people are having in their organization um, and also what they're doing well. People are, are, I think, because it's not the organization calling them. So they speak much more freely to us than they would to if, you know, if the dealer were calling them. Yeah, that's always true, isn't it? Surveys are, are innocent. Yeah. And they're very open and they tell you exactly what, you know, what happened, what they liked, what they didn't like, and they appreciate it, that they care and they're asking us to call. It's, they really do. It's nice. So it's a nice combination between the analytics, the artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. like the, the, the massive data we've got is rather astounding. The, the thing that bothers me on the data side is the accuracy of it, because we tend to move information around to satisfy whatever the metric is that we're looking for. You know, the old joke is you're, you're spending too much on repair and maintenance this month. Oh, well, next month it'll be fine. Right. It's, it's, it'll be allocated to a different department. Yeah, it's like the guy who comes back from a convention and he submits his expense account and the boss says, well, wait a second, what's this 10-gallon hat in here for 200 bucks? He said, oh, I'll take it out. And three or four months later, he comes back to the boss and said, do you find the hat yet? <laughs> it, it, so back in the 80s Harvard did a massive survey on retention across the industrial distribution world and they wrote a book called The Service Profit Chain I was really interested in your 124248 because they definitely for our industry for the cap, the equipment world if you can increase your customer retention by five percentage points, you will increase your net profit by over 50. Actually, it's 45%, but what I've seen is over 50%. Yeah. And that's any anytime confronted with that, people thought oh, that's impossible. That's ridiculous. And yet it works every damn time. Yeah. And the people that make the most money, um, and there's a, a small number that really know how to make money in the equipment industry as you know, um, they understand this and they are able to, as we've talked about, you know, walk up an upturn and walk down a downturn where they're saving their money on an upturn and building their capital and choosing the customers that they'd like to have and getting rid of the customers that aren't really contributing. And then on the downturn, they have the resources then to take advantage of the drop in prices, picking up lines, picking up equipment, and picking up the best people. Because you can't hire in an upturn. Yeah. You know, it's just 
So it's just, a, it's, but it takes patience. And it's also the understanding that it's three to five years to bring a customer on in this industry. If you're not willing to understand that, then it's, you know, always out there being pushed by the OEMs. Where's my sale? How come you haven't sold equipment? Well, you can't sell equipment if you don't have a relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And especially in this world, I think it's true everywhere, but the equipment world is really a relationship business. The uh, last week, one of the contributors that writes a blog for us, his name is David Jensen. He's got a master's in psychology, I think, or psychiatry. He was the HR boss for Sarah Lee. And he, his blog a couple of weeks ago was talking about employee engagement. And and I'm dealing with the fact that on the downturn, you can get the best people. The employee engagement, Gallup did a study early this year that said 20% of your employees, I'm using round numbers, um, are engaged and are, are making a difference. And they're excited and they're doing all kinds of stuff. There's another 20% that don't want to be here. They're not doing anything. They're just, to, to quote one of the guys I work with, they're just taking oxygen out of the room. <laughs> so we got 60% of the people in the middle that can go either way, depending on who their leader is. And leadership has become a real serious issue today, more than I've ever seen. And I people tell me more than has been written about. And that's confronting the change you're talking about, data analytics, artificial intelligence, telematics, sensors and equipment, all of the technology. And it's so far ahead of where we are at. In fact, it's kind of scary. Mm -hmm. And the older generations, my age, I'm going to put you folks in a much younger category, but the older generation, I'm being nice today, Steve. No, thank you. You're welcome. Let me just put my cane over on the side. Here. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> like I, I took a minor in computer science in the in the '60s, which means I'm a real dinosaur. I learned how to wire unit record equipment. I ran software companies, and somewhere in the late '80s, I decided I couldn't keep up anymore. It's it's it was impossible. The rate of change was too much for me to keep up, and I'm not on. I'm probably very common for my generation. The younger generation, my granddaughter, my God, she can run circles around me. She's 21 years old and telling me how to work with, you know, the cloud. And my goodness, it's amazing. So here comes artificial intelligence in your algorithm and your forecasting model. You give it to smart people and their eyes glaze over all that. Well, they, I don't think they believe it. And when we originally started this, it started with the customer satisfaction. I built models to buy companies. It's, you know, so automating that whole process of evaluating whether a business could, you know, be purchased and afford to carry the debt, you know, financially playing around with that. But again, it was spending a lot of time explaining why my forecast was wrong versus why it was right. But then when the, the paper came out, on your net promoter score, the professor, I can't remember his name, from Harvard, they written the paper. We we got a copy, we had a client. And so we looked at that and they said, well, there's 79% correlation with a company's ability to grow based on the score. Then they looked at 14,000 companies to come up with that number. So we had been tracking retention rates. So we said, well, if there's, is there a correlation with retention? Because retention to us was a, a bigger factor than the growth rate. Because it was a core value versus a the growth rate's a symptom. The right. core value is your customer retention. Yeah, it's and we found out it was a 90% correlation. So we could forecast the next four to six months on retention with a high degree of accuracy. But then we found out that if we could add the comment, if they gave a negative comment, we could increase that accuracy up to 96% for the next four to six months on retention of that customer and all other customers. So the negative comment, it's anti, uh, antithetical. The negative comment is, it turns out to be a positive influence. Oh, the negative comment, if they give a negative comment, even if they give you a, a zero to 10, they give you a nine. 
if they give you a nine with a positive comment, um, your loss rate in the next 12 months will be 12% of customers. If they give you a negative comment, it goes to about 27% loss rate in the next 12 months, even though they gave you a nine. And, it, and, and Debbie, you're able to get those negative comments given to you because you're innocent when you're doing the survey as opposed to the company calling themselves. Yeah, but also what we do if we hear a negative comment or get a negative score is we'll let the company know right away. We find if they contact the person and say, oh, gee, I'm so sorry, I didn't realize, it's fine. It has no it has no impact. But if they don't do anything, then it does have the, the negative right. impact. So if they intervene, they neutralize the situation. Yeah. They yeah. neutralize it. Because they care. They yeah, care. That's right. And and Steve, you're not just doing this in the construction world. You're doing this in other industries, correct? Oh, we're doing it for um, packaging industry. We're doing it for the waste industry. Um, a, whole uh, a whole bunch of manufacturers. manufacturers yeah. It all holds true. And, and the variation on the statistics isn't that great? No. See, that's that's the part that I'm sure confuses. Like statistics was one of my majors, and I, I love this stuff. Um, and that makes me a real weirdo. But <laughs> statistics are, are are powerful things. You know, it's the old joke, fools make numbers and numbers make fools. Liars or whatever the hell, you know, that expression is. But if, if you've got the data, and this is where I was making the comment a little bit while ago, the quality of the data becomes problematic. If it's sales transactions, that's pretty clean because the customer is going to pay. If it's cost side of things, cost of sales varies. So if you're dealing with the number of transactions, not driving it by revenue, and you're not driving it by margin. It's just transaction purity. Yeah. If you look at your margin contribution, just looking at a straight invoice, you know what it costs you for the whatever you sold. Forget about the accounting after the fact and the personalities reallocating, allocating whatever they right, right. Yeah. making the numbers, you know, yeah. Classic, I'm a good accountant because yeah. Yeah. I give you what you want. Um <laughs> but this way, then I, I really try to get people to move off of cost accounting because statistically most of the things that you're spending money on are gonna be you're gonna spend the same amount of money. Um, next month and your ability to make adjustments is not something you can do overnight especially if it's people intensive so your costs for uh, you know like a dealer their cost of overhead of a branch the heating you know the everything else related to it isn't going to change so what you can do then is look at um, what's the contribution and then you can look at are you you know are you generating the profit that you need to make. And, and this is why the cost accounting distorts people's perception. And it's like pricing for parts. I mean, Ron, you've done this repeatedly also, but for parts, it, what only the only thing that matters is your trigger items and your high frequency items. And the solution to that is a good, better, best pricing model. And everything else can be priced full margin. And if you don't believe it, take a look at Granger and take a look at their 43% gross margin that they have. And they are um, two steps removed from you know where everyone else is. And they're they're making 43%. Yeah. Um, Genuine parts is another example. Napa, the people that own Napa, yeah. 38% plus gross margin. And, and, right. and they have nothing that is unique. Nothing. Nothing. They don't have any proprietary product, nothing. And Granger's the same way. Syntas is another one. If you look at office products like Staples when they were um, public, um, the, the drivers, the only drivers they had, because it represented 86% of the decision to purchase, was copy paper and toner. So they had a good, better, best. They featured the good copy paper because 86% of the decision to buy office products was driven by copy paper and tongue. So they didn't have to worry about anything else. Everything else was, oh, I need that. I need pens. I need, you know, folders. 
and it's it's like going to the grocery store. It's it's eggs, bread, and you know, milk. milk. Yeah, yeah. It's the old story of Seven Eleven. You know, they go in there for the convenience of cigarettes, and well, I ran out of milk, and you don't want to spend the price of a quart of milk at a Seven Eleven. Um, how how um, influential thinking about staples and the the paper toner, etc. How much of, of their in-store, their displays, the selling off the floor is influenced by good, better, best pricing? Is it or not? It is. It, what you want to do on your end caps, I mean, having been involved in retail, um, your big money is in your visible end caps. So that's where you're putting... Um, it's like Sears Roebuck. He had, you know, they had a good, better, best for dish, you know, for washing machines. The the good was, you know, bolted to the floor. And if anybody sold a good washing machine, they were fired. Um, because people come in on the price, but they'll buy their preferences. Only 20% really buy on price. Everyone else is going to buy on quality. So they'll buy the better and best. And they'll have, and on that, you can get a full margin. So it's, John, Deere, John Deere tried that with undercarriage. They for for a long number of decades they had the best, arguably the best undercarriage out there, Duratrax. But the dealers didn't get any market share with it, and then they made a deal with the Italians, and and so they had two products: a, a high price and a low price. The only thing that changed in that circumstance is the revenue dollars went down by the price difference. Didn't change the market share at all. Just changed the what they sold because the seller was a price point person. And how do we overcome that one? Uh, we, we track this by monitoring on the phone calls. And what's interesting, the parts department, um, you can listen to a thousand phone calls and only 4% of the time does price come up. And most of the time it's brought up by the parts guy going, don't you want to know the price? Or let me tell you what the price is. It's pretty expensive or giving their opinions. Um, and the response generally is not, oh, thank you for that information. It's like, number one was, do you have it? Number two is, when can I get it? And if I'm unhappy with the price, I'm sure I'll tell you about it after the fact. Get me the part. Yeah. Yeah. And partially the deal from my perspective is, have you got it? Sometimes, how much is it, and how long do I have to wait to here to get it? Same thing in labor. It, it's it's remarkable. I, I used to say that price and time were the two pressure points that the customer would put on a dealer employee, and the dealer employee wasn't prepared. You know, the the, the customer says to a guy on the counter, if they do bring up price, damn, that's expensive. I always used to say, compared to what? And so all of a sudden the customer's on their heels or, well, what'd you expect? That's something else that puts them on their heels. <laughs> We're the best after all. But, you know, that's why you're talking to me. And, I mean, and, and most of the folks that are in there have never had any training on this. They don't know how to deal with it. Oh, you must be right. We, we track just yes. If, if you always say yes, then it becomes, yes, I can get it for you. Um. Then they'll go, when can you get it? Well, I can get to you next year. And if they do ask price, it's going to cost you a million dollars. But if I can say yes, that's a 74% close rate versus if I say anything like I'm going to have to order that or anything negative, it's a 14% close rate, even though the circumstances haven't changed. Isn't it remarkable? I, I, I wrote a blog a couple, three months ago, but you know, my philosophy in life anymore is all somebody asks for something, I say, sure. I can do that. <laughs> it confuses the hell out of everybody, you know. <laughs> you know, somebody's gonna ask me a question one of these days, and I'm gonna say yes, and they say, Okay, go do it now. Let's see. <laughs> call that number catch my bluff. But it, you know, when when you know Debbie Steve just spouts statistics because he's got all of that around, but it's intriguing to me that. It was predicated on buying companies to try and minimize the mistakes. And now you're talking money. You, you don't want to buy something that's going to cause you to lose money. Dealers 
when a customer stops doing business with them today, most of them don't know that's happening, number one, unless they use your tools. And it, it goes on and on and on. So the characteristic with the customer is I stopped buying them. Nobody called me. They don't care. Right. 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 And and if only we told people what you're doing, they haven't bought anything for the last week or two or four or whatever that gap is, based on their previous life. Statistics says that the closer the last two events are, the higher the probability of a future event. Right. That's been true since the beginning of time. Exponentially increases every month that goes by. Your loss of that customer exponentially increases. Isn't that, and, and, and that is statistically true, yet nobody seems to want to engage. You guys do. I think your customers do now. But it, I, I don't think it's it's intuitive. It's counterintuitive to most people. And you see that in the surveys. Customers tell you anything that you want to ask, anything you want to know, they'll share. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're happy to. And, and, the, and get the same response. Well, Debbie does the benchmark surveys for a lot of the manufacturers in different industries. And it really is what their expectations. A lot of times people don't find out what the expectations are. And if you don't understand that, then you can't proactively manage the relationship. So for the equipment industry, the expectation, depending on where you are, is I'm going to get these parts in the next 24 hours. Well, it turns out 92% of the time they do. Yeah. And 8% of the time they don't. But for that 8% that they're not getting the parts, even if I told them you're going to get it next week, within 24 hours to 48 hours, they're calling me up and saying, where's my part? I tell them every time, you're an idiot. I told you it was going to be next week, and that, that goes over really well. Um, <laughs> repeat business. Um, you got to tell them before they call you. Yeah. One, one, of, one of the rules I used to employ was we will get back to every customer the same day they place the order and tell them where we have found the part. Then we can have a discussion about how they want to receive it, how they want to get it. Is it fast by air? Is it by boat? You want to go by Morocco or what? The next day, or the day after I'm supposed to get it there, and it doesn't, my boss is going to call. We just take it up. And and I, I modeled that on IBM. They had a thing called an alert chart. And, and they were pretty clever about how they did it. Computers going down in the 60s, when you got batch computers, and there's nothing but this one monolithic thing doing your payroll, for instance, and I've been there. And it isn't didn't put out the checks this week. You got a problem, Charlie. And IBM mm-hmm. had a stance that was kind of interesting. When things go bad, they said, fill the sky with planes. So I had two computers running a dealership. They were both down at the same time. I had every publishing company in Canada in the meeting room next door. And there were about 20 guys in the room, gals and guys, mostly guys, though, Debbie. I imagine. I stood on the desk and I said, okay, which of you folks, stick your hands up if you are here and able to fix anything. And three people stuck their hand up, and I said, "The rest, of you get the hell out of here." <laughs> just, they were just causing problems, and it, it's the same damn thing, Steve. You, you know, you, it's going to be here in a week. I told you, and they keep coming back. Oh, that's right, I forgot. So now we've got an education process with the customer as well, getting them but, to trust what we say, because they don't today. But also proactively keeping them informed. You call them before they call you. And that's really the big complaint. It's never price. People always say it's price, but it, the price comes up. You didn't get it to me when you said you're going to get it to me. You got it to me three months later. Why am I paying you anything? Why aren't you paying me? Yeah. So they categorize it as price. Yeah. I, I've always said price is only important when everything else in the transaction is identical. You, you made an interesting comment, though, that it was all based on expectations. And customer service to me is a function of expectations and perceptions. The customer has an expectation coming into the transaction with you. They know what that is. Typically, we don't. Right. And they have a perception of how they received or what they received. 
and they own that one too. And unless we ask, we're never going to know. Right. Customers, that's right. is, you know, it's the same deal. That's right. Debbie does the benchmarks periodically for a lot of different industries because the, the expectations have changed, just like you were talking about. Where it used to be people in parts of the country would say, well, my expectation is I'm not going to get that part for a week. But today, because of Amazon and others, um, they're expecting it tomorrow. And in in L.A., they expect it within probably four hours. They almost treat themselves as if they're a car um, dealership where you got a, a truck roving around for delivering parts for the you know the jobs that are on your you know on your base. So let's shift gears here for a second. Market share is important, true or false? It's customer market share is important. Okay, you define that for me so that we're on the same page. Customer market share is there are 10 people that buy equipment in my market. How many of them are my customer? Okay, so unit transactions of machinery is the same thing, true or false? Um, the transactions are a result of the customer, not the transactions dictate the customer. Again, that's that's a perception that's a position that is alien to the thinking of this industry. Yeah, we, we just set that up for one of the equipment dealers. Um, getting them to incorporate what's your market share when it comes to customers, because customers may buy, be buying used equipment, they may be buying parts and service, but the customer in that industry is your market share. And you also have to look at it, what industries are you serving? It's great that someone says, oh, I've got 100 um, lawnmowers sold, and you go, well, we've got a hand lawnmower, and we're not really in that market. But the manufacturer goes, you could have been selling that, but no, I don't have any customers that buy um, lawnmowers. So a lot of this is a manufacturing, you know, wanting to keep their plants busy and push equipment out. A dealer is selling to what the customers are looking for in demand and supporting them. And the equipment purchases and the parts purchases will all be a result of maintaining and engaging those customers. And we, we seem to be starting to move the customer closer to the manufacturer and further from the dealer. National accounts, um, large industries, those types of things. Are you seeing that as well? We're seeing that just because of the efficiency of delivery. But because of the support required, um, a lot of it is application support. Like, how do I use this machine? I don't have somebody that's trained on it. So if you look at Europe, you've got a lot of people that are, you know, shackled to their machine so when you have a machine you've got the guy with it you know um so i think the model will will change as time goes by but the simplicity of the electronic electronic simplicity of operating um, whether it's a dozer or um some of these large trucks the the ai the artificial intelligence that can run and assist reduces the skill level required to operate the machine. No question. Yeah. So and that that model you're talking about back when I started in the industry a hundred years ago, the, the French dealer in France, Bergerac Mobile, they had one technician in the field for every between 10 and 20 machines, depending on work conditions. Hmm. And their market control was phenomenal. It was almost impossible for anybody else to break into it. And then, you know, over time, education changes, MBA programs, um, and a financial architect came in and changed that model and profitability sank for a couple of three years. And it's hard like hell to get things back when it changes momentum. Of right. course, the guy was fired, but there was a whole bunch of people that were the penalty in the penalty box, you know. That's that's the dilemma. You know, you've already mentioned it on financial statements. That's a look backwards. Used to drive me crazy. I, I ran a data processing department for a while at a cat dealer, and we put financial statements out every day. And they said, "You can't do that. How can you do that?" 
They said, well, you can put out invoices every day. Why can't I do that? Well, we've all we've got all of these these allocations, and it, well, forget the allocation. How much did you spend? You know, that's all I was interested in. And boy, I had a bunch of it's it's it, like in the consulting world, you go into an operation, you have a big Klieg light, a big flashlight, and you put the light in the corner, and you watch where the rats go running. It's 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 amazing. So here's statistics that are hard like hell to fight. Reagan said it, facts are awfully stubborn things. And so now the onus is on the performance of the individual. And that is, I think, fundamentally what's in our way in many regards. I don't want to be accountable. Yeah, you've also got, if you're talking about there's 20% of the people are actually doing stuff, and the rest of them are following. Yeah. So organizations require people. There's a, you know, we've been a, we've talked about this a little bit, but the, the right type of person is somebody you can throw in there and they learn as they go and apply the knowledge and continually improve it. And those people are invaluable for the viability of a, a business. And a lot of times they're not recognized um, and yet they're critical. If you look around, you'll find that handful of people that everyone goes to to get stuff done no matter what the task is right and so it's it's identifying the people that really make and rewarding them that actually make the business work but a lot of people when we've done benchmark surveys with technicians their biggest complaint is seniority you know where they they get in there they master a whole bunch of things and it's not how much they're being paid they just want to have the opportunity if they're capable of doing it and get paid Irregardless of who else is working there, if they're the best, um, recognize it. And yeah, I think that's always been true. I think so too. The the um, I worked with a John Deere dealer on the West Coast a long time ago, and they wanted to find an objective way of evaluating the skills of the people technicians. So I built a questionnaire that the technician was going to fill in on themselves. So it was 15 or 20 pages, I don't know, six or eight points on a page. So it was a reasonably comprehensive circumstance. And I scored them by different engine transmission, blah, blah. So we've got that. Then I got together with the management and said, okay, fine. Give me the payroll for these same people. Got that. Then we had the management come in and say, okay, fine. Who are, who are your best guys? And we made three different lists. There was zero correlation. Now, I was surprised, and, and at the end of the day, they weren't either. But isn't that a horrible thing to say? Well, we did the same thing with dealers. For one of the big manufacturers, <laughs> we looked at all their dealers. This is really entertaining. And we said, um, we asked everybody, once we had the list, who your best dealers were. And the all the one this is the management of the, the manufacturing company on down and they all were giving the very worst dealers on our evaluation of who made a good dealer and a good dealer from our standpoint was are they selling machines are they selling parts did they have their warranty claims under control and yeah, you know, so you can look at, are they really making a contribution as a dealer? And what came from this was that their perception of the best dealers were the ones that warranty was totally out of control. Every transaction was a negotiation because they had to give a better price to their customers. Yeah. The dealers that did that tended to have their select group of customers. They were, really weren't selling to the whole market. They were selling to their favorites. Just the horrible worst dealers in there buying aftermarket parts weren't buying anywhere near the, the OEM parts that you'd expect with the number of machines they had outstanding. But from a perception standpoint, um, people misread um, who really is doing the work. It, it's, it's interesting to bring that up because for the last 40 or 50 years, metrics have become kind of the gospel. And, and here's the metrics we should go by. And in the last little while, 
consulting companies, Kinsey and Accenture and the big boys, are starting to receive criticism because they're starting to deal vanilla. It's the same thing over and over and over again. There's nothing new. There's nothing changed. And the world is changing very quickly. So these metrics that we've been driving on all this time, and, and you looked at it, one, two, four, two, four, eight, just those two sets of metrics, if that's all we did, that'd be wonderful. Because the results would be there, right? Right. Then they are. And and you can prove it with you can create the model with AI using the dealer's data, transaction data, not financial, transaction data. Debbie cross-checks it and, and follows through and ensures that there's traction on implementation. And that combination is powerful as hell. Yeah, I'm just like, as we said, a calling program and an email. And Debbie runs that out of wind speed. Um, it, it, the return is in the thousands for every dollar spent. It's not, it, it's, it's it, nothing else compares. So it's like, why wouldn't she do it? And all of the companies, Debbie, that, that Steve gives you the analytics for, how many of them sign up for the surveys? The majority or not? Um, yeah, I th- most people do the surveys as well. They're doing both. Have, have anybody who started with the survey stopped them? No. Have you had anybody, Steve, who started with the forecasting stopping? No. So, you know, other than I'll take that back. We had one that the guys that were running the operation all got promoted in this large corporation. And, <laughs> and then this, this, this guy steps in to take it over, who's the sales guy. And so he stops it, calls me up and says, you know, I know everybody. I know everybody that's out there that really buys. I, we don't need any of this stuff. And you're just going, <laughs> okay, well, well, we'll see who replaces you in the next six to 12 months. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I, I, a number of times, I don't know if you've heard this, I'm sure you have, but a number of times the dealer principal tells me it's the shingle that sells, nothing else. <laughs> and it, this is a people business. It's a relationship business. It, if you don't have the people, you've got nothing. And, and, and Steve, as you say, I was talking to the president of Troy University. I think I mentioned this to Debbie. Jack Hawkins is his name. And he's, he's got a remarkable history and, and track record. And I said, okay, fine. What are the challenges you're seeing from kids coming out of high school into college? And he rattled off three things. Critical thinking, analytical thinking, and communications. I said, well, that's that's not curriculum-based. That's not history, reading, writing, arithmetic. <clears throat> he said, no. What we seem to have developed is we're teaching people to tests. We're not teaching people to think. Right. He said, what's more problematic in my mind, him talking to me, is I don't see leadership skills anymore, anywhere. Hmm. And... One of the large healthcare companies in America asked him to put on a program for his folks at a convention. I think there were 2,000 people in management that were coming. And he wanted a leadership training program put together. So he put the program together. They went down, had a day, and out of the 2,000, 1,200 people signed up. So the owner of the company was really pleased. This is great. A month goes by. Less than 100 people that had signed up out of that 1,200 had actually done anything. And that's something I see or used to see a lot in our classes. They would leave a class. They go back to work. The first couple of days, they're catching up with the stuff they did. They missed while they were away. Same gig on vacations. So two or three days go by, and now they got to sit. If they have a break in the action, they got to sit and say, okay, what was it that I wanted to do that was going to be different? Mm And the probability of anything happening was low. And the education model now, they're saying, remember the old 50-minute lecture? They don't want 50-minute lectures anymore. They want 10-minute pieces, blocks, with a quiz, with the technology in the classroom. We can hold up a phone. We can, we've can. got laptops. 
So the professor is putting a quiz question up on the screen and everybody's answering. So we did that to all of our classes. The first time, the first 10 or 12 minute quiz, a third to a half of the people got the answer right. The second time, 10 or 12 or 15 minutes later, a half to two thirds. The third time on, it was well in the 90s because all of a sudden people knew, damn it, they're going to check on me. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> even in a conversation, we tune in and tune out. We check in, check out. What did right. you say? No, I didn't miss anything. And, you know, I go back to wherever the heck my mind wandered to. Do you ever get anything like that from, from, from a customer that the, the dealer isn't really engaging with me? I think that that's the nature of the industry. It's so reactive that every every meeting you have, they're being barged in on if they're in any type of leadership role. And the guys that take responsibility end up having even more people coming to their door. So it, it almost dummies down their capability to think forward because if they grab hold and be responsible, they end up owning a lot and get blamed for a lot. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that goes back to your point of your surveys with that Debbie was doing for who's the best dealer. Yeah. You know, the, the story of Gerstner going into IBM, and he has his first meeting with all of the executives, and he asked them to, who are your top three customers? And nobody could give it to him. Uh, so the meeting broke up very quickly, and it was reconvened a week later, and he, everybody gave him their top three customers. And then he disappeared and went out and visited every one of the customers. There was a there was a commercial on television years ago in the same, you know, we we're losing our business, we're losing our customers, and here's the guys I want you to go see, and and this is the guy I'm going to go see. I'm the president. Um, Blackie was out with customers all the time. Yeah, leaders do that. Oh, when when we did the the dealer dealer analysis, the reason why they didn't like the dealers that were their top dealers is they were the most vocal. And <laughs> yeah, most probably. They said those those guys bitch all the time. I mean, if I could get rid of those guys, I would. And you yeah. just going, no, they're your top dealer, and you're talking about you're not. You got to listen to them. You don't. You don't turn them off because you got somebody else who's blowing smoke up your rear. I always was interested in who's the troublemaker, because those folks tended to think about the world differently than the rest of the room. Mm -hmm. And if you pay attention to the troublemaker, it's amazing how much that's the same people you're talking about, Steve. They, they cause me trouble. There's aggravation. They push back. They want better. That's that's the folks we want to pay attention to. We've been asked to validate um, a, a game that um, academics have been using to evaluate whether a student will complete a course and go on and get a job and hold a job. And it's just a simple game. It takes like 10 minutes. And so they've come to us and want us to evaluate whether this is a functional way of, of you know, determining whether a salesman or a branch manager or a department manager, can we differentiate based upon their scores? So it, I think a lot of people are beginning to, you know, think in terms of what potentially is out there to get the right people in the right spots. But what's interesting about the AI being able to track someone's game performance to determine how successful they're going to be um, going forward is, you know, kind of a a novel way of approaching this yeah. whole issue. Yeah, David David Jensen, the fellow I mentioned a little while ago, he lives in New Mexico now, but he was one of the founders of um, Personalysis, and I and you have too. But I've been involved with a lot of personality profiling products, Myers-Briggs and all the rest. And what personalysis does is they, their questions are, what do you least like? Mm -hmm. The flip of everything. What do you like? You know, everybody knows that. That's easy. And after a while it goes. And I'll give you an example. I, I worked in a, in a lockup in a prison when I was, first came out of university and I was trained on how to do that for treatment programs for people. So I had a Caterpillar dealer in Nebraska, a former Caterpillar dealer in Nebraska, wanted me to do some consulting work with them, and they wanted me to fill out this form. I said, that's cool, just as long as you share the results with me. So we did it, and I worked with them for about a year and a half. And he says, you know, I've got this other project I want to get done. You don't fit the profile. 
do you know anybody that will do this? And I said, well, tell me what you're looking for. And he did. And I said, okay, send me the form. I sent it back to him. And he, he called me almost instantly. He said, how the hell do you do that? I said, what? He said, you fit exactly the profile I was looking for. I said, well, that's the problem with profiles, isn't it? You can't overlook, you can't avoid the discussion eyeball to eyeball, whether it's in this rectangular Zoom meeting or face-to-face -face in, in a coffee shop or whatever it is. That's, that's the real test, isn't it? And that's the survey, Debbie, where the customer can be honest with you because you're innocent. You're, you don't have a vested interest anywhere. So they tell you the truth. Yeah. And most people will tell you the truth if you ask them. But if you, if it's somebody you're dealing with, they're not as likely to tell you the truth because we're taught to be nice and to be polite and to be kind. Yeah. We're not, unless you live in New York and then you are, but otherwise, no. <laughs> New York's got a personality all of its own. You, I, I agree. But you know, from Kansas to New York, that's quite a transition, kid. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's you so, learn. Where do you see the industry going, Steve? With electrification, with all of the technology, with the difficulty in finding talented people, I suspect it's going to be more data analytics than less. It's going to be more data analytics, and it's also going to be monitoring electronically the machines because they're all going to be battery, you know, battery driven or battery assisted. So you've got a, you know, a motor on, you know, engine on top, topping off your battery, not driving the vehicle. And once you do that, then it's communication and then having it, if, if it requires a human intervention, it's making that moment is, um, successful as possible, arriving with the right parts at the right time with the person who knows what they're doing. And if they don't know, having the ability to research it on the job and fix it. Um, so we've been telling um, dealers that we work with, they have to start thinking in terms of expanding their equipment um, that they're servicing to things like batteries, um, you know, turbines, things that are gonna generate electricity and going just beyond the equipment and their expertise is going to be parts and service and being available because of their proximity to um, the customer it's just they're going to have to have a broader a broader reach mike Rowe and dirty jobs there's a story of a, a man had a heart attack he needs a surgeon there's one surgeon available he's 100 miles away at his country cottage and we make the call. And the guy says, okay, I'll, I'll come in and get it done. I can be there in about three hours. But halfway on the drive, his car breaks down. He's got the best car you could possibly have, but the car breaks down. He gets out of the car and he starts calling. A mechanic is found. The mechanic comes, fixes the car in 15 minutes because he brought the parts. He, he came on time. He knew how to identify the problem, fix the problem, and off he went. Surgeon gets there, the operation's a success, a success. Who do you think? The mechanic or the surgeon? And you know, this this, you know, having the right part at the right time with the right person able to do it, that's going to become more and more. And being involved with that machine, because it's going to be electric and it's a different world with electric. Parts and service is not what it is today. That's why I think we're going to services, not things. But that's a heck of a transition. I don't know how many of the dealers that we have on the planet today in every industry are going to make it because they all live off parts and service. It's going to be a challenge. And also, it changes the nature of the, the length of life of the equipment. It will be much longer. Right. So once you just have that platform, it's, it's strictly wear parts and that can be replaced. Yeah, one of the interesting things, Ed Gordon is another fellow that uh, he's from your neck of the woods. He used to teach at Northwestern and University of Chicago. He's got a couple of PhDs. Hateful, he's so smart. And he says by the year 2030, 50% of the American workforce, and he put a number on that, 80 million people will not have the skills to be employable. 
So in this really optimistic point, society isn't ready for that either. Yeah. I mean, you had the same transition in agriculture. Once you industrialized agriculture, you went from some crazy percentage of 60, 70 percent of the population was involved in agriculture. It's down to less than three. Yeah. Yeah. That's, the bulk of it happened quickly. Yeah, it really did. That's the 1800s to 1900s transition. It's it's pretty shocking. And the same thing was true with production lines, nineteen pre-1950 and post-1950 with, with automation and robotics. And and now with data analytics and and, and technology, I think it'll be even more uh, extreme. Um, it's also the destruction of middle management, um, because a lot of the information, just like you're talking about having parts available, um, direct from the manufacturer on demand, which is where Ford's going. Um, you're you're going to end up having a very thin layer of people that are on the job and on the job is I'm dealing with the customer at that point of contact because the need for layers and layers of people to supervise layers and layers of other people um, will disappear. Yeah. And, and not just that. I, I think the, the learning, the skills that we get out of the traditional education model that when we went to university, hopefully this is a fair statement that the skills that we received were able to take us through our whole career. I don't think the skills that you receive in education today are going to last much longer than 10 or 20 years. Things are changing so quickly. So we're going to be going back to re-educating the workforce. I think people have to accept the fact that they're always going to be in a position to having to learn. And unfortunately, what I'm seeing is that because of the tools that people have, it's cut back on their ability to think. Yeah. Because, you know, they don't have to know how a a telephone works or how a handheld calculator works it, it just works and so they're totally out of what you know out of their element if any of those things fail that's right what do i do now well i suspect i've taken longer of your day than i should have done but i really appreciate the chat and the time and debbie you can go back up to the roof and get in the water and steep into it <laughs> does it <laughs> Thanks, Ron. <laughs> any, any, any closing comments you want to put on this to make it a wrap? I think that the, the future is going to be challenging for everybody, but it's probably one of the most exciting times um, for, for anyone to be alive. This is a wonderful time, a wonderful time for opportunities, just being willing to step out and accept the fact that change is around you and how do you adapt to it and take advantage of it? Debbie, you got any thoughts on that that you, you could put up? Completely agree. Yeah. And just tell the truth. You know, it's a lot easier that way. It, yeah. <laughs> I, I can't tell lies because I don't have a good enough memory to remember them all. But, but to, to put up, you know, my vernacular on what Steve just said, when, when I was in software development and, and putting systems together, it always used to... I, I used to characterize the user as having galloping diarrhea because whatever the heck it is that I gave them, they said, oh, that's great, but can you do this? Because there's always more. Never and know. Get into the mode that we are always thinking that there's more, that lifelong learning thing you're talking about, Steve, will become a reality. I think that's good for mankind. Not, I do too. You know, and you're right. It's exciting as hell. It's, you know, reading all the stuff you can do today that, it was, you know, Buck Jones or, you know, all of this stuff. Carl Sagan is closing videos, is taken from space, going away from the planet Earth as the planet Earth gets smaller and smaller and smaller and how we realize we're just a little microcosm here. Thank you both. Gracias. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having us. Have a, have a great day. I appreciate it. And um, Thank you, everybody who listened to this, and and we hope you got something from it and look forward to being with you at another Candid Conversation in the near future. Mahalo. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We appreciate your support. Should you have any thoughts or comments, please don't hesitate to contact us at www.learningwithoutscars.com. The time is now. Mahalo.